Good morning. If you need a lesson, raise your hand. Um, Stacy Craver has got some back there, and she will be glad to give one out. Um, it's, a, it's an eight-pager. I'm intimately familiar with it. Um, so don't hesitate to, to raise your hand. Dale Hearn frequently reads my lessons beforehand and, and gives me some advice and some thoughts about them and uh, helps edit them down a little bit. And he sent me an email after he got this one that says, had you had any sleep before you wrote it? Um, and then he politely said at the end, I love you, but I call him like I see him. So uh, <laughs> I'm not sure this handout's worth reading, but you might need like a fly swatter or something like that. It rolls up. Whack! You can kill the bugs. Uh, grab it if you got need one. Uh, we are uh, talking this morning about an issue that bothered the early church in the 400s. By the way, how many of you were in uh, uh, service this morning with Brother Draper? Good, good bit of you. Uh, uh, I got into town this morning uh, uh, and, and literally came here straight from the airport, and so I missed the start of the sermon, but I got here, and as I walked in, I, I didn't want to disturb everybody in there, so I came in here to hear the end, and as I walked in, he kind of did church history in like two minutes. Just bam! And I thought, boy, why can't we do that? So, you know, you've already had your church history today. Uh, uh, he went through the martyrs in the first, you know, second century and the apologists and the commentaries. I thought, you know, we got a class of people that could like flesh out some details on this stuff. And uh, uh, we're having some fun with this. But what we are looking at today is a particular problem. And, and to really get into this problem, and it's kind of a two-week issue. We're going to look at it today, and we're going to look at it a little bit next week in a little different light with some of the repercussions. But uh, uh, to do this justice, we've got to kind of get a rolling start of some things that we've already studied, just kind of a little review to make sure that they're still in our brain. So, so it's, it's like if we're building something, you've got to do the building blocks to get to where we need to be. And so that's our, our first thing we've got to do. We're going to put some building blocks down, and what we've got to do is remember some geography lessons that we've already covered. So get your geography mind on, and after we go through our geography lessons, we're going to look at the nature of Jesus that's already been fought about in the church in the 300s, and we'll refresh that in our brains, and only after we refresh those things are we going to deal with this week. Fair enough? All right, you got your geography mindset ready to go. Here's your quiz. Name that place. That's earth. Okay? As Earth from above, that's a satellite photo. Assuming uh, you're not Stephen Colbert and you believe that uh, we really have been to outer space, and uh, uh, isn't he the guy who thinks that, pretends to think that the moon landing was fake? Okay, well, anyway, I don't think it was. That's how we got these cool pictures, is something went up there real far. But uh, we're going to change that, and we're going to zoom in with a little different NASA photo. What part of the region of the world are we? Yeah, this is the Mediterranean area. That's Egypt down there, and that's the, the Nile Delta. He talked about the Nile starting up down here. Uh, that's Turkey and Italy, I mean, Turkey and Greece and Italy. This is the northern coast of Africa, and over here is Israel. Now, here is the geography lesson we need to get. Where were the important centers 
for the early church. In other words, you know, the church spread out throughout the Middle East and throughout the, the civilized world and even the uncivilized world. But where were the centers that were like really... Uh, uh, the, like, where's the center of the Baptist church? Okay, what's Nashville, is that sort of the Holy Lands for the... Okay, that's the Church of Christ Holy Lands. I knew that growing up in the Church of Christ. Um, uh, you know, where, where are... You, you compare that to Roswell, New Mexico, okay? I'm sure they've got a Baptist church in Roswell, New Mexico, but it's not quite the thriving center, uh, the vibrant activity where, where you really look for some kind of direction and, and voice, okay? It might be the difference between Hardin Simmons and Baylor or something like that. Uh, uh, you know, the, the, you, you've got different spectrums in geography of where the, the church is more concentrated and even, sorry to use this word, more power connected, okay? All right, four cities that we need to look at in this time period of the 200s and 300s and 400s. First we're going to look at is uh, Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is uh, still around today. You can go there. Debbie Riddle's got a second home there, practically. Um, uh, uh, Debbie and Mike go there uh, a ton. Our class has been there once. God willing, we'll get back there another time. Um, But you can go there. And Jerusalem is a natural place for the early church to be strong because the church started there. It was in Jerusalem on Pentecost, as, as Luke wrote in Acts chapter 2, that the Spirit descended and, and thousands were added to the church. And Jerusalem really was the center of the church. And, and when we say the center of the church, it wasn't merely the center of the Jerusalem church. In Jerusalem, decisions were being made for the church at large and outside Jerusalem as well. See, the power structure within the Jerusalem church was a power structure that asserted authority beyond. And the the, the church asserted this authority for two reasons. Number one, the apostles were there. And God had given authority to the apostles. And so it's natural for the apostles to assert that authority outside of Jerusalem. But if we look at Acts chapter 15, which is one of the examples of when the church asserted authority... The church in Jerusalem is writing to the churches outside of Jerusalem and says it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us, the us there being the apostles and the elders of the Jerusalem church, not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. And and that's a, a, a letter that was written out when the issue was, do outside churches need to be Jewish law followers? Or can they just be Christian churches? And so uh, you have the apostles and the elders within Jerusalem sending this letter out. Now, Jerusalem doesn't stay the center of church activity and power structure even by the time you reach Revelation in the New Testament. Because in 70 AD, the Roman forces finished wiping out Jerusalem and the Christians by and large left before that wipeout took place. And so you you have a dispersal. A lot of the apostles left anyway because they were going into all the world to make uh, believers out of all nations, right? The the Great Commission. So, But you've still got Jerusalem, and it's still got a a good bit of power and authority. Now, second, enter uh, the following. Antioch. 
And this is the Antioch that's uh, north of Jerusalem, uh, uh, still in Syria today. There were a number of towns called Antioch. They were named after Antiochus Epiphanes, who was one of the generals uh, uh, after, uh, of uh, Alexander the Great, and he'd conquer and name towns after himself. But this is one of the Antiochs. We've got a gate left today, but that's about all that's left. You won't be uh, uh, eating any meals there unless you bring your own food. Uh, but you can still go to Antioch. At the New Testament times, though, this was a very important city. We discussed last week, Acts eleven twenty six. It was in Antioch that Christians were first called Christians. And so it had a real strong tie. Antioch had a strong school. John Chrysostom, the preacher we talked about last week, came from Antioch. Antioch uh, uh, has been subject to a lot of class lessons. They sent out, Antioch did, the first Christian missionaries. Uh, Paul and Barnabas in that crew used Antioch as their base to go out and do mission work. And so, in a sense, Antioch had planted a lot of different churches in that region, especially in Turkey and Greece. You can see why if churches had been planted by Antioch, Antioch would maintain some degree of authority and and, uh, power, if you will, over those churches. Does that make sense, why it's a center? All right. A third place that we need to look at as a center of activity is uh, Rome itself. Now, Rome is a center of activity and a center of power for the church for a number of different reasons. First of all, at the time of, of 100, 200, 300, who's living in Rome? The emperor. You got, you, you know, you got the emperor there, you got a lot of power there. The church by itself is like in the major city of the known world, of the world. And so you've got a lot of power there, but you've also got a lot of Christian tradition there because this is one of the few churches where both Peter and Paul ministered within the church. Paul wrote a letter to the Roman church. Paul and Peter both died at the hands of Nero while in Rome. Paul and Peter are both buried in Rome. So you've got a huge Christian historical presence in Rome as well. And Rome uh, is a church that took interest in outside churches. Clement of Rome we studied early in church history because he was a second-generation Christian who wrote a letter to the Corinthian church telling them uh, to get in line. So Rome is asserting, and we ultimately know that the Roman Catholic Church finds its center and seat in, in Rome and within its Rome's Christian history and heritage. We'll discuss that more uh, next week. That's really going to be a significant part of next week's lesson, God willing. So we've got Rome. Now, let's wipe it off. Anyone care to guess a fourth city? We're going to get five up here. Constantinople. Constantinople. Good. That'll be fifth. Anybody else want to guess the fourth city? <laughs> Can't change the PowerPoint. Huh? <laughs> Alexandria. Yes. Famous for one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the, the lighthouse at Alexandria which according to the Discovery Channel, some guys may have found at the bottom of the sea there. But uh, Alexandria, Egypt has a claim to fame, first of all, because uh, the church's Old Testament was called, the early church's Old Testament was called the Septuagint. And it was translated in Alexandria. Alexandria was a huge intellectual center, the largest probably in the known world. They had the largest library in the world. It was a huge scholastic uh, center. 
And so it's only natural that, that there was a huge growth of the Christian movement there. The church supposedly was formed by Mark, uh, the Mark who ran with uh, uh, Barnabas and, and Paul and then uh, was a buddy of Peter's and wrote the Gospel of Mark after listening to Peter. And uh, St. Mark supposedly started the church in Egypt and uh, uh, missionized at least the church there in Alexandria. So you've got Alexandria. And then uh, um, we'll move it aside now. And for Gary Greer, we'll go to uh, the next one, Constantinople. Constantinople is the new Rome. So it's got all of the reasons for power because it's now got the emperor that Rome had before. The emperor that rules over the eastern half of the civilized world lives in Rome. It's also got some of the most spectacular churches, including the Church of Holy Wisdom, Hagia Sophia. Uh, uh, so Constantinople is one of the other shot, uh, big shots, big uh, towns. Now, I got to tell you, I would love to tell you that the church grew in harmony and Christian grace and virtue. But the church is made up of a bunch of uh, people. Okay? And People don't grow well in harmony and virtue, generally. Absent, well, absent God's hand, they don't at all. But, but even with God's hand, it's still difficult at best sometimes. And uh, for that, look at the divorce rate even among Christians. It's huge. It's not because, gee, we'd like to be divorced. It's because we can't figure out how to sometimes make things work in, in the midst of even God's hand there. And so you, you've got, it's no surprise to find that the church doesn't seem to work all the time, even with God's hand there. There is tension. There's huge tension between the Roman church and the Constantinople church. The tension's so big that in the 10 hundreds, yeah, 1054, I think, or something like that, you'll find a final division between east and west. The Eastern Orthodox Church will, and the, the Roman Catholic Church will split. Uh, it's a profound split. It's a split that, that John Paul II tried to work towards healing, but he couldn't heal. I think his quote was, the church needs to breathe on both lungs. We must find a way to, to reunite the church. But, but, you know, that doesn't even count the Protestant Reformation issues that we'll get to later. But you've got this competition between them and this struggle and this, this differing viewpoints and differing cultures and different mentalities. We're not going to deal with that fuss as much today. That fuss will come into balance a little bit more next week. Today, we're going to look at the power struggle between the Alexandrian church and the Antiochian church. Okay? Huge power struggle. Antiochians, I put down historical literalists. Do you know why? If you remember, if you were here for the lesson, if not, you can download it from our handy-dandy website. Um, the, uh, uh, the, Alexand uh, the Antioch church, as we talked last week with John Chrysostom, was very much a literal church. My Bible's in the car. Um, okay, you got a Bible? If you're at Antioch and you're from their school, you read something... You read the story of Jonah. Do you know why it's there? Because Jonah got swallowed up by a fish. It happened. He is in the belly of it for three days and he got spit up on the land. It's a historically accurate, literal event. 
And that's the way you'd be taught if you went to the Antiochian school of uh, biblical interpretation. Okay? Now, Alexandria, they didn't buy into all of that. They thought, that's just awfully simplistic. They were big on the allegory of Scripture. They would take the Jonah story and say, you've missed the spiritual truth. The spiritual truth is when you deny God, you are consumed in darkness and death. And you stay consumed until you repent, in which event you become like whale vomit (laughs) until you finally get cleaned up enough to get on with your life and do what God wants you to do. And so for the... I mean, that's what it was. Excuse me. Okay, the whale spit him up there. You become like whale spit up. Um, the, you know, I, I, was it Jeff Shreve who preached on this one time and said, uh, said, you wonder how Jonah got a whole city to repent. Can you imagine just what he smelled like when he got there? Um, they were quick to repent, anything to get him out of town. Um, the, uh, uh, but this is a huge difference and it makes a difference. Don't you think it makes a difference? Think of our own heritage. The evangelical heritage on how you interpret scripture has, has, has caused a great deal of controversy and division. Now, it was no less true then. Allegorizing scripture. We have some younger people in here. Allegories, if you haven't hit that yet in English class, that's like... Uh, the Chronicles of Narnia. You know, it's not that there's a literal Aslan, a lion, in a literal kingdom of Narnia where he literally gets killed by a witch and then literally resurrects to life. That's a story that's told to communicate the biblical truth, the spiritual truth, that Jesus Christ, a king, came to an earth uh, of subjects and paid the ultimate price giving his life for the subjects but then resurrected by God Almighty in power to bring victory in the truest eternal sense to the people. Now, the Alexandrians, lest we write them off as uh, kooks because of their allegorical approach to Scripture, are not without some scriptural justification. They would tell you, we don't do it any differently than Paul. Look at Galatians chapter 4. Paul in Galatians chapter 4 says the following. It's written that Abraham had two sons. That's true. It's in Genesis. These things may be taken figuratively or allegorically. For the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem, the Jewish people at the time. But the Jerusalem that's above, God's heavenly Jerusalem, is free, and she is our mother, much like Sarah. Here's what Paul's saying. If you go back to the story of Abraham, Abraham's been promised a child from God. Abraham and Sarah, his wife, are are not having a child. Sarah is barren. So Sarah comes up with the novel idea, hey, we got to have a kid, God promised it, he's not coming through, looks like I'll need to be God here. Why don't you have 
a relationship with Hagar, my maid, and then from that fruit of Hagar's womb, that'll be counted like mine because she's my maid. And the maid's name was Hagar. So Abraham and Hagar lie together. Hagar gives birth to a son, and uh, Sarah decided she wasn't as fond of that plan as she originally thought. And uh, uh, Hagar and the son get kind of booted out of the family. God blesses the son anyway, and the son goes on to form a great people, uh, though not the people of God that the Jews are. And uh, uh, there's eternal conflict between those tribes later, we might add. We'll talk about that another day. But Paul is saying that Hagar who's not the real promised mother with the real promised child, she's like the law that doesn't save you. The law will point you to Jesus, but the law doesn't save you. It enslaves you. It makes you a slave to sin. Whereas the other woman, Sarah, symbolically, is the Sarah, the mother of promise, and the child of promise that's the seed of Jesus Christ that sets you free. This is a big allegorical thing. I can remember teaching a Bible study in Galatians when I was a sophomore or junior in high school, and I got to this, and it stumped me. I couldn't figure out what Paul was talking about. Very, very difficult passage to understand. I remember to this day struggling to try and figure out what on earth he meant. Because it's not the way we think about Scripture. Scholars today would say that Paul's not necessarily doing the allegory thing that the Alexandrians thought he was. Maybe his was more a rabbinical thing. If you want to know about that, go back to church history. No, biblical literacy lessons. I think I talked about it there. But, but suffice it to say that the, the people in Alexandria are saying, hey, this is scriptural to interpret this stuff allegorically. So you have this huge fight going on between them. Whoops. Huge fight on whether you allegorize or whether you're literal. Now, here's the problem. I should have drawn a map up here. Antioch, do you know governmentally which church Antioch's responsible for? They pick up Jerusalem because Jerusalem's right down here. So Jerusalem and Antioch are kind of in cohorts. Then Alexandria is kind of out here on its own. And the big question is, who's going to influence the emperor in Constantinople? Not to mention the fact that you've got Rome over here who's got the western half of the the civilized world headquartered over there. So these two cities, Antioch and Alexandria, are constantly fighting to be the ones of influence up in Constantinople and even in Rome, but more so in Constantinople. And uh, that's our geography lesson, okay? Building blocks. Those are all basic reminders put in different words. Now, next building blocks. The nature of Jesus... If you recall, back in the 300s, we had a huge fight. This fellow named Arius came out and decided that Jesus was created by God. That there was a time when there was no Jesus. That Christ, and and by Jesus, I'm not talking about the baby Jesus. I'm talking about the divinity of Christ, the Logos, the Word. In the beginning was the Word, okay? Arius said there was a time where there was no word before the beginning. And the word came in at the beginning. God made Jesus, and then after he made Jesus, he made the world. And this is what Arius taught. 
Arius taught that Jesus, as the Son of God, was created by God, had not lived forever. Arius taught that when John 3.16 says, God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that Jesus was begotten, so there was a time where Jesus had not yet been begotten or born. The early church had huge controversies over this, fought and fought about it, and uh, finally said, no, At the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Constantinople, the decision, Jesus is 100% God. He's no more created than God Himself the Father. No one created God the Father. No one created Jesus. I remember as a kid, you know, it's weird how these things all pile on to make you who you are. But I can remember in Rochester, New York, Mom, and Mom's sitting in a rocking chair rocking Holly... I'm talking to mom while she rocks Holly, and I can't figure out who created God. I mean, everything I know is created. The world's created. I could accept that. But who created God? What was there before God? This is one of the problems I have with uh, atheism, the idea there is no God. Okay, Fine, I'll dismiss the evolution fight. I'll dismiss the Big Bang fight. I just want to know where anything came from and why there is anything to even explode in a bang. And mom's response was, that's one of the things it means to be God. It means that there never was a start. And we can't understand that fully because our minds are created and we're not God. But that's the eternal aspect of God. I think, knowing mom now, she lucked into this answer. <laughs> but it's, it's, no, her mother's, I see my grandmother's back there going, no. Obviously, grandmother's going to take credit for teaching it to mom. <laughs> we'll get all of this hashed out over lunch if y'all want to join us. But um, it's a very profound answer, and it's a correct answer. So, so the church early recognized Jesus is 100% God, and there was agreement on that. He's not been created. He's, there wasn't a time where there was no Jesus. Jesus was 100% God. But then the question started raging, which is the next generation's question of, okay, how human was he? Yeah, We'll accept he's 100% God. There'll be no more dispute on that. If you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. But how human was he? Now, this may seem like a stupid argument or a stupid question to you. So I want to flesh it out a little bit. Jesus is God. We all accept that. The early church accepted it, right? Okay. Jesus, God, becomes born of the Virgin Mary. All right? How human is he? Yeah. Let me ask it this way. Does Jesus, the baby, have God's mind or a human mind? Does he have to learn language or does he already know it? Does he have to learn history or does he already know it? Does he have to learn what no means? (laughs) 
Or does his mother even need to speak because he's got the mind of God and he can read her thoughts? Maybe she never had to say no. She just had to think it. <laughs> My mom had an expression where she didn't have to say it all the time. We could tell. God's emotions or man's emotions? Does God have emotions? What are emotions? If God doesn't have emotions and man does, then did Jesus have emotions? Because Jesus is God. You starting to see some of the problems here? God's willpower or man's willpower? God cannot sin. Could Jesus? If Jesus didn't have will problem issues because he couldn't sin, then why is he in the wilderness being tempted? See, these are the problems that the church is sitting here with. And we put it in these frames. Frame. Does Jesus score 1,600 on the SAT? <laughs> yeah, does he have, you know, Jesus is perfect. Could he miss a math question? Could the guy who made math miss math? Okay, these are, these are the issues that I've put them into 21st century speak, but these are the issues being confronted by the church in the 400s. And there's a debate, and as you would guess from the geography lesson, the debate is between the Antiochians and the Alexandrians in, in power terms. So um, we have the two debate podiums there. Uh, I have blanked out the heads of John Kerry and George Bush for purposes of this PowerPoint. So neither you or I can decide which one is speaking for God. This is not a political lesson. Antioch says the following. Jesus is 100% human and 100% God. Okay? Alexandria says the following. Jesus is 100% God and he's human. Well, we ain't putting that 100% in there. The human thing is just, you know, he just came, okay? It's not, I mean... Why do you have to be so literal about everything anyway, Antioch? That's why you get in trouble. You read everything so blasted literal. You just need to allegorize some of this stuff. Jesus was a human. Just let it be. Absorb it. You know, just, you know, just listen to it like a Pink Floyd song with your eyes closed. You know, just sort of feel it. All right, whoops. They were in the dark on that issue. Um, now, while that's their dispute, I got to tell you, there's more at play here than just Jesus. If we look at it as a rock, there are some ripples because there's a real power struggle going on. There's some real undercurrents. If we, if we went back historically, and I go into a little more detail in your handout, if, if you can understand it, uh, which is debatable evidently, but... Um, Dale did read the version before Dara edited it, so maybe it made better sense by the time you got it. But, but uh, uh, if we looked at the historical currents, we're going to see both of these churches kind of stabbing each other in the back some and taking each other down a little bit. So there's more at play here than just Jesus. 
But these churches are very firm in their positions because they believe it affects your salvation, how you believe. Consider Adam and the fall of man. There is a fellow out of Antioch who is a major theologian. You can read his stuff today. Theodore was his name. And Theodore condemned one of the, the Alexandrians, a guy named Apollinarius' viewpoint that, that, uh, uh, that Jesus was not 100% human. And here was Theodore's argument. He says, consider Adam and the fall of man. If only half of man fell, then you're okay with a half-human Jesus. All right? But if all of man fell, then only a fully human Jesus saves. If, if, if Adam and Eve and us were only sort of fallen, then yeah, you can have a sort of human Jesus. But if we're a 100% fallen man, then we better have a 100% human or the price hasn't been paid for our sins. Pretty good argument. And I think he's right. Now, let me tell you about a little problem that was happening politically in the world. The, the uh, bishop of Constantinople died and got replaced. And the fellow who replaced him was a guy named Nestorius. Nestorius came from Antioch. So he was a literal guy. And he was a guy who says Jesus is 100% God and Jesus is 100% human. But there's a guy over in Alexandria who's the bishop named Cyril. Anybody know any Cyrils? Okay, I hope your Cyril's a better Cyril than this one. Okay, this Cyril is, you uh, don't like this. You don't like the idea that an Antioch guy got picked to be the bishop. That's really putting Antioch in power. And Alexandria wants to be in power. So he's got a feeling Nestorius is not the sharpest knife in the drawer anyway, and it's just a matter of time till Nestorius messes up. So Cyril sends spies to the church in Constantinople to sort of sit out there and trip him up in a sermon, waiting for Nestorius to cross the line and say something bad so that truth and justice can prevail in the church and this guy can be destroyed. Okay. Well, Christmas Day... 428, oh, to be in Constantinople that day and hear this wonderful Christmas sermon by Bishop Nestorius. You know, how do you mess up a Christmas sermon? That's, pretty, that's a pretty no-brainer, okay? But old Nestorius messed it up. Nestorius gets up and he says the following on Christmas morning. Now, how many of you speak Greek? Okay, we're going to need a little help on this because he was in Greek, speaking Greek, okay? He stands up and he says the following, Do not ever call the Virgin Mary Theotokos. Just don't do it. Lewis, you had not done that this week, have you? Okay, he's clean. He could have made it by the orthodoxy. Any, anybody messed that up this week? Anybody called her Theotokos? I'll tell you what, if you go to a Greek Orthodox liturgy today, they still use the word theotokos even in the English liturgy, by and large. So I might get someone to raise their hand if they've been eating baklava, um, going to a Greek Orthodox service. Uh, don't call... Theotokos means God-bearer. Theos is God. Theology we get from that. 
Tokos is a carrier or a bearer. Don't say that Mary gave birth to God. This was his reasoning. If you say that Mary was the bearer of God and gave birth to God, then you are not reckoning that Jesus was 100% human. She gave birth to Jesus. And there were two natures. There's the nature of God and the nature of Jesus. And these two natures are merged with the conception and Jesus comes forward. So you can call her the Christ bearer because she bore Jesus Christ as a child. But Jesus Christ was more than just God. He was God and man. And so to say she's the God bearer says is not given full credit to the humanity of Jesus. It's just acting like he's God. It's an Alexandrian fiction. Don't do that. You don't use that word. Well... When word got back to Cyril of Alexandria from his spies on this, he got to work. First of all, it almost sounds like you're slamming the Virgin Mary. That's like a no-no. Okay? Still a no-no in the Catholic Church today. You don't walk around and slam the Virgin Mary. Scripture says she is to be most honored among women. Not slammed. We don't treat her like God because she's not God. But you don't go around slamming the Virgin Mary. Nestorius didn't mean to, but it almost sounded like it. Cyril goes to work, and what he starts doing is he starts putting placards up. Well, he doesn't. They mysteriously start appearing in uh, Constantinople. Nestorius uh, slams the Virgin Mary. Nestorius acts like Jesus is two people instead of one. Nestorius is unorthodox. These placards mysteriously start appearing. And then Cyril starts playing Nestorius like a puppet. What he does is he sits down and he starts writing letters. My dear Bishop Nestorius, it has come to my attention in Alexandria that you said we shouldn't be saying Theotokos. Please tell me what's going on in your mind. It's real interesting the way Cyril does this. He doesn't tell. He doesn't, Cyril doesn't ever really commit to ink an opposite argument. Instead, he just kind of asks questions and gets Nestorius writing. And Nestorius starts writing, and as the questions get deeper and the probing gets deeper, Nestorius really gets in trouble. And Nestorius ultimately commits himself to a bad position through these writings. What Nestorius says is ultimately he's got two people there. He's got Jesus and Christ and he can't really merge them into one because he's so emphatic that you got two independent things. And Nestorius finally comes out and as much says that. In essence, he says that God comes in and, and assumes this human Jesus. That's kind of unorthodox. No, not kind of. That's unorthodox. That's heresy. Okay? So, uh, Cyril goes to work and convinces the emperor through all these different means to call a big council together to deal with Nestorius. And there's a big council that's called in Ephesus. And a bunch of bishops show up. And this is a huge power play politically as well as a doctrinal play by Cyril of Alexandria. And ultimately from this, Nestorius is deposed. He's stripped from office and he's exiled as a heretic. 
It's interesting because the Roman church helped Alexandria do this, the, the, what we would call the Pope now, the Bishop of Rome, writes letters and assists in this in the Canal of Ephesus. Now, the, the answer doesn't really come out of this council. The council's not real useful in the answer. The answer doesn't come until Chalcedon in 451, which is a little bit later. Not a lot, but a little bit. And uh, uh, I want to discuss this more next week. I've got to give you some of the answer. But this is a two-part lesson. So you've got to come back next week. And people who are out today because it's Labor Day or next week when they come, they won't have a clue what's going on. So we can all look smugly at them. <laughs> um, no, we'll try to make sense out of it next week. And that will be your little refresher. But I, I, I've got to tell you, you see, the reason why this is a two-part lesson is what happens with Chalcedon is an incredible story in itself. But it also gives us, uh, 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 this is the look ahead. This is the highway towards next week. Ooh, do you see that road sign? <laughs> Rise of the Roman papacy ahead. Uh, Leo is the Pope of Rome at the time, Leo I, Leo the Great. And arguably the first really full-powered Pope of the Roman church. Um, in terms of the way he exercised his power. And, and it really came into play with this story. And so it's going to be very important. Let me tell you what the resolution was, just so we can tie this class together into a nice bow, or a bow. The resolution was it's a mystery. God is 100% God, but God is also 100% human in Jesus Christ. And he has a human mind, as well as God's mind. But there are, there, the humanity and the interplay is something that we can't fully understand. But it's obviously there. He's obviously 100% God. We've known that since uh, Nicaea. All right? The church would say. But the church would say, look at the scripture where Jesus says, no man knows the time of my second coming. Not even I. Only the Father in heaven. So there's some limitation there, right? This is not an SAT 1600. But by the same token, he's got the mind of God. And when he speaks out on the mind of God issues, he speaks with the mind of God. So that when Jesus says something, we can trust it's 100% reliable. So, so the church is sitting there trying to struggle through this. And the ultimate answer is it's a paradox. It's a mystery. But somehow, in ways we don't understand, 100% God becomes 100% man and gives us 100% salvation. Now, there's a Christian songwriter, singer, who's also a pretty good theologian named Michael Card. Anybody ever heard of him? But he writes some really profound stuff. He's got a song to the mystery. And I think uh, Michael clearly had studied this well and understood it. Look at the lyrics. He says, when the Father longed to show the love He wanted us to know, He sent His only Son and so became a holy embryo, even at conception, holiness, 100% God. That's the mystery. It's more than you can see. And He says, give up on your pondering. Just fall down on your knees. If you don't know Jesus and you don't worship Him as Jesus, that's what you need to do. But you need to do it also recognizing He's 100% human. And then his, his last verse, he says, uh, A fiction is fantastic and wild, a mother made by her own child. A hopeless babe who cried 
was God incarnate and man deified. See, it's both sides. It's God made man. It's also man who has God. And it's 100% needed because the fall devastated. So the Creator must recreate, take our sin, be made like us, 100% human, so we can be made like Him and dwell with a 100% God. It's a mystery. That's why he titles the song, To the Mystery. Um, we'll get into it a little bit more. We'll explain Chalcedon a little bit more. We'll tell a great story about it. and We'll look at the rise of the papacy next week. But here are our points for home. Just a few scriptures to mull over. Um, first, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was 100% God. And the Word became 100% flesh and dwelt among us. I added the 100%s there. They're not in any translation you're going to read. But in the Greek, there's no modifier. It doesn't say part God. It doesn't say pseudo God. It doesn't say part flesh or pseudo flesh. Because it's true. For as, that should be as, the many died by the trespass of one man, Adam. How much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? We had a 100% fall and death in Adam, but we have a 100% Savior in the 100% human, God made man, Jesus Christ. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. How on earth can Jesus relate to us if he wasn't 100% human? If he didn't have human temptation, how can he know what it's like to be tempted? But he did, and he knows. That's the mystery. God dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has ever seen or can see, 1 Timothy. And yet, if you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. See, there's this paradox. There's this mystery. So uh, take it home and ponder it. But more than that, accept it. What an incredible God we have. And what a wonderful opportunity to study Him. Wait till you see. There's actually some good meat to the answer in Chalcedon. And, and, and truly, the story is incredible on, on the maneuverings. I mean, it's a tale of, of murder and, and, uh, and God working just preemptively in history. All of a sudden, one guy who's just standing in the way of the church being a heretic church for the rest of eternity just, boom, falls off a horse and dies, which is very helpful because the emperor needed to die. Um, it's, it's a really cool story. Would you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for the opportunity we have to look into your scripture and to see how people who've come before us have struggled and, and addressed words and, and issues and concepts about you. Lord, I confess to you, so much of our faith is built on the work of other people and the understanding that you've enlightened through your Holy Spirit that, that we get the benefit of standing on great shoulders to, to even know where we are. And I thank you that we've got a chance in this class to sit down and to, to, to stare a little bit and probe a little bit and figure out how it is we got where we are today. Where concepts that to us, Father, just seem very normal, 
uh, uh, actually have a great bit of history behind them. And, and it's an honor to get to study that. I pray you'll open our eyes to it more and more. And out of it will grow a greater appreciation of you and of what miracle you brought in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that this Christmas, and not just this Christmas, but every day that, that we address you and we pray in the name of Jesus, we realize what a mystery, what a paradox, what an incredible deed you've done to be fully human and bring full salvation to our humanity so that we can be with you eternally. Um, it's incredible, and we're honored to be your children. May we take our lives as seriously as you do. In Jesus, I pray, amen.